Have no fear of missing out. The show's about FOMO. Your host is Brian Franzo. I'll tell you what you don't know. And now, your host, iSocial Fans. All right, you guys are in for a treat today. We're going to do a little bit different. We're going to actually flip the microphone. You guys are going to hear two different podcast interviews where I'm getting interviewed on the topic of influencer marketing, what my thoughts are on really what an influencer is, where influencer marketing has come over the last couple years, and also just kind of the difference between, let's just say, a Kardashian and a social influencer or a subject matter expert. I try to break this down in regards to not only influencer marketing on how it impacts businesses and brands, but also what it means to be an influencer And I share some of my thoughts kind of across the board. And so the first interview that you guys will hear was an interview that I was on the Analytica podcast. Analytica is an influencer marketing tool. So check it out. This is the first section of this special episode, my interview on the Analytica podcast. To cut through the noise to the people that you want to talk to. Well, we're living kind of in this on-demand generation, and I'm a I'm a millennial, but I'm a, I'm a pager-wearing millennial, which really doesn't mean I don't have a pager today. But I I did own a pager. I'm 35, so I'm like on the the upper end of the millennial spectrum. But I think if you look at this the the kind of consumption we have today, it used to be kind of like the field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. And now it's changed where we the consumer has the power, and the consumer says, "You must come to me." on my preferred communication channel, on my preferred network, and you must not only bring me the information, but you can't be disruptive. We we didn't like commercials, so we moved to you know DVRing our TV. We didn't even like DVRing our TV, so now we have on demand with things like Netflix. So when you're looking at you know as a brand, not only do you have to figure out where the best channels are, but you now have to figure out how do I get on those channels and not do it in a disruptive kind of, I would say, um, you know, insults type way where you just come in and, and blast your message, you now have to actually be part of the conversation. And rather than build it and they will come, it's now go to where they're at and be part of their community to stand out. All right. So that kind of that that leads me on nicely to something that that I hear you talk about quite a lot. And that is think like a fan. Tell me about that. So, you know, I think for brands, um, especially in this new digital era, I think for the last nine or ten years, digital and social media has has really grown and allowed us online to become further and further away from our consumer, further and further away from our customer. And we've heard things like content is king and and all of these different kind of, uh, I'd say, catchwords and things that have really been working in, working in marketing. But today, to not only reach the right audience, but to provide content that the audience actually wants to consume, wants to share, right? The, the idea of creating a viral video, you know, everyone will say, you know, I created a viral video that nobody watched. And really, you didn't create a viral video. You created a viral video in your own head. But because it, it wasn't what the audience wanted, it wasn't what your, your consumer wanted to share, it never went viral. It was never shared. So I think when you're looking at, when a brand's looking and saying, hey, how can I leverage the tools that are out there today? And I, I do a lot of work in the live video space. So Facebook Live and Periscope, you know, I've, I've launched uh, accounts with IBM, Dell, Samsung, SAP. I, I broadcasted from the Super Bowl. 
And that entire mentality was, how do I put myself in the fans' shoes? So, like, if I'm thinking like a fan, what would my fans like to see that they can't get elsewhere? And then how do I create content around that? Because if you think of it this way, if you bring your fans into kind of exclusive access, so if it's behind the scenes or the red carpet or maybe the day before a product release or maybe even just into your boardroom on a Friday, you're giving them kind of that exclusive access to make them feel part of what you're doing. And I think there's nobody out there. It's not a millennial thing. It's an everybody thing. We all want to know that our voice is heard and we want to be a part of things that we're investing in. You know, if we're, we're spending money in it, we, we hear these things like, you know, uh, millennials only want to invest um, in businesses or spend their money with businesses that have a greater social good. And part of that is because they want to feel like what they're, what they're spending their time in and what they're investing in is, is part of something bigger. And I think when I work with brands and we're looking at strategies, I say, think like a fan. And really, it's putting yourself in your fan's shoes. So it doesn't matter if you're a B2B software company, maybe you're a, a plumber, or maybe you're, a, you know, you're an event organizer. The question becomes, how do I provide kind of this exclusive access and then how do I do it in an authentic way? And that's where the influencers come in because now I'm thinking like a fan. I'm providing content that my consumers actually want to consume. And then I'm putting it in a way where I'm actually empowering someone that they already trust to create that content. And now the brand kind of comes the facilitator and says, hey, I support this community. I understand my user base. And here's someone that I want you to bring that, that I'm bringing with me to bring you access into content you can't get elsewhere. And I think the combination of that really does take this new idea where it's not just content is king, but it's how do I give exclusive access to build that, not only that authority, but how do I establish trust with the influencer as well as with the community that's actually consuming the content? That's really interesting because you're taking a, a good angle to the uh, something that I quite, quite like to talk about a lot is the value triangle, right? It need, there needs to be something in it for you as the brand, there needs to be something in it for the influencer and there needs to be something in it for that influencer's audience. Otherwise, these engagements don't work, right? But it's very without common. Without question. Yeah, without question. And it's very common that brands will focus on making sure that there's something in it for the influencer and for them and go down that side of the triangle first. But what you're actually saying is go down the other side of the triangle first. Make sure that whatever content you approach someone with that your audience, which should be their audience, because that's, that's what you're looking for, make sure that that content works for them, because you're actually breaking down that barrier before you're even engaging with the influencer, right? You're saying, hey, we've checked this out. The people that you talk to seem to love this. How about you want to be the guy that actually brings it across? Without question. I think, and I think you hit it right on the head with the value triangle. And I think the interesting part is I actually put the onus on the influencer as well as the brand. And it's something that I've really, I've launched a course that really has a lot to do with, you know, as an influencer, I, I don't believe any one brand, any one event, any one product is ever worth jeopardizing the authenticity and trust that they, that that influencer has gained with their community. And so when a brand comes to an influencer and prevents, presents an opportunity to, you know, work with this brand, it has to not only be beneficial for that influencer, like you said, but it also the influencer has to say, hey, is my community going to resonate with this? Is, am I going to actually be able to have influence, which means 
you know, I'm, by sharing this, I'm actually going to prompt an action, not just going to broadcast it to a, you know, a wide number of people. But my, my trust with this group and the, the fact that this is an authentic part, you know, either a product, authentic brand, I'm going to actually be able to create action by sharing that. And then as a brand, you don't want to work with an influencer that doesn't have that kind of mentality because, you know, losing trust with the audience is what that influencer's, it's really their value proposition. That's their, that's what they're selling. They're saying, you know, I have trust with this community and this community trusts me so much so that by aligning with me, you have a better chance of bringing your product in a faster way and probably a less disruptive way to my community. But if a influencer doesn't value that, that, that relationship and that trust, then the brand should see that as a red flag. And then as a brand, you should start saying, okay, now that I know that this influencer will not jeopardize their community or their trust with their community. How do I team up with them to create content that makes sense? Because it's nothing more frustrating than saying, well, we like you because you're an out-of-box thinker. We like you because you do your things your way and your community trusts you. But if you're going to work with us as a brand, you have to do it our way in our, our box. And I think that's kind of the, the older way of these, this kind of relationship. And moving forward, I think it's kind of like that meeting in the middle, having a shared you know, purpose, and then both understanding that value triangle, as you said, and making sure that trust is on all three sides, not just two of the sides, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of the relationships in the past have been. Yeah, and you said some really interesting stuff there about kind of a, a professional code of conduct and the unique assets that uh, are are the wares of of the influencer. So let me put a pin in that for a second because I want to get back to that. Uh, we were talking about content just before that and saying, you know, how we can spend a lot of time understanding what perspective it is that is actually valuable for us to deliver uh, to our fans or those people that will become our fans eventually. So if we move back to that step just a little bit more, and usually when you say, look, I've got a makeup product and there are channels that I know people love, so if I just get on that channel, all will be well. If we go way back to the beginning of that and you're looking at a B2B brand that's just starting out to discover the right influencers for them, if you had, say, a five-point checklist, what would be your advice to them? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to start by realizing that, you know, the whole, the whole think like a fan aspect is, you know, nobody likes being marketed to, nobody likes being sold to. And then on top of that, even as an influencer, the, the, the concept of like, hey, you have influence is still a weird thing. I, I like to say, although there are professional influencers today, nobody, you know, I have three daughters. My daughters aren't saying, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be an influencer or I want to influence somebody, right? I'm That's really happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, yes, me too. And I think the, the influence, I like to say, is a byproduct of the community. And so if you're looking at that checklist, I think first and foremost, the, the idea has to be, it has to be a collaboration of what content, and then how do we tell that content over a, a story? Because here's the thing, I think for a lot of brands, especially when you're looking at influencer marketing, you're looking at it in the short term, but yet if you look at a brand and you say, how do you build relationships? You always hear brands say, well, relationships are a long-term play. And I think just like a story, a good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
And I believe part of this crafting of content when it comes to working with influencers is how do I craft content so that it does have a beginning? It allows me as the brand to introduce myself with the influencer to that community. That doesn't mean drop a call to action and product placement, you know, wham, bam, and we're done. It means, okay, I need to introduce, I need to bring myself into this arena. And I always say, like I have, the way I walk that through is I say, you have to socialize and amplify that relationship. Make it make sense. So if you're a product company and you're giving someone a product, make sure that that product is something they've either used in the past or they're starting to use over a period of time so that it isn't out of the clear blue. And so you socialize and you amplify, and then you start educating. I think the education part to me is probably the most essential and it's probably the one we forget the most because nobody, no consumer will ever say, you're helping me too much you're providing me too much insights or you're solving too many of my problems. Like no, everyone says, you know, like, Hey, sign me up for that. I think when you go through the education part of a relationship between a brand and an influencer, educating the audience as well as the influencer on the values of your product. Why, you know, cause this is, this is one of my staples. I, I do keynotes around the world and I always say for a brand, what you do is really boring. Nobody cares what you do as a brand. They care why you do it, why this product came to life, what, it, what it's about. And then they also care how it's going to impact them, the audience. We care about the experience. We don't buy a new iPhone because we need another device. We buy an iPhone because it's going to impact us. It's going to allow me to take better pictures with my kids. The reason that the, we care about the iPhone release is we want to know why they put these products, these features in the iPhone. And so when you're looking at this and you're looking at content, I walk through and I say socialize and amplify, and then I say educate. And then the fourth one is execute on that partnership. So that, you know, storytelling, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Execute on, hey, this is an event we're going. Bring people kind of into that world. Allow them to understand that relationship. And then the end part is I like to say, you know, report, repeat, and tweak. And what I mean by that is this is something that, you know, you're going to test out, okay, well, we put the product placement in there, but no one really noticed the product was even there. Or the questions we got were more on an educational basis, less on a how can I buy that product or where do I need to go? And so now we go back to the drawing board and we say, okay, what kind of content can we create that educates them and answers those other questions and then repeat the process again? And I think... If you look at this and you look at things like live video and YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat, these platforms, the reason these platforms are powerful is it's, it's breaking through the barrier. It's shrinking the distance between the content creator and the consumer. So rather than before it taking, I always said, 12 to 18 months for a strong relationship to be built with a, a brand influencer and their community, I believe thanks to these new platforms, you're looking at you know, 60 days to 180 days to start building that relationship. But remember, because it's a, a faster pace, it's also easier to ruin that relationship at a faster pace. So that's kind of how I look at it when we're breaking down kind of building content as well as bringing that brand into that influencer's world. You socialize and amplify it. You educate the audience on why you're doing it. You execute on what your, your, your common uh, you know, purpose of this partnership is. And then you report, you manage it, you tweak it, and you go back and, and go back to where you can do better things. And I think you know, for a lot of brands I, and, and even influencers, when I talk to influencers, I always tell them, you know, any influencer, any person with an audience can get a one-night stand with a brand. 
very few influencers can actually get them to call you back the next day. And that's because it requires you to have a relationship, understand how to report on your data, build content that makes sense for both the brand and yourself, and then ultimately build something that is more of a partnership rather than a one-off relationship. And I think that's where we're going with influencer marketing, but it does definitely take a shift in priorities and the type of content we create. I'm happy to say it only took us about three or four iterations of the podcast for someone to finally say one night stand. So I thank you for that one. Um, I was also, I was listening to the bit about storytelling and it kind of reminded me of something, which is a, a bit of a plug for the people that are looking for a new, a new bedtime read. But uh, as I just checked my Amazon history about three years ago, I got a really, really good tip when I was working at Edelman uh, to read a book called The Seven Basic Plots. It's all about why we tell stories and how there are basically seven varieties of stories. And if anybody's really interested in how to create a narrative, it's a great read. It's not a short read, but um, if you want some time away from a screen, get that book. It's really interesting. That's really, I, I'm writing it down on my side. I, I have a book that's much older that I always recommend people. It's from 1936, and it's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's amazing that Dale Carnegie wrote a book in 1936 that I, I still reference on a daily basis. But I, I, I like that we can throw some books in there that walk people through storytelling as well as uh, building relationships. Absolutely. I think there's, there's hardly any more quotable book uh, than that Carnegie book. Virtually every line is something that you can repeat to someone and, and they'll get value from it. Without question. So we were talking about professional influencers and we've uh, we've kind of moved away from that for a second to talk more about the approach. Uh, but I'm still really curious to know, so do those people give the field a bad rep, do you think? Or is there a chance of that? Well, I actually think that, and this, this is going to come off kind of harsh, but I think it's actually our fault as marketers that we've kind of thrown the word influencer out there without actually defining it for the market it or educating people on what an influencer is. And, and for me, I, I believe there's three different types of influencers. And I think that's where I usually start the conversation is I believe there's a, your celebrity or your social amplifier, which has, you know, the person has natural credibility, you know, your, your Kim Kardashians, your Beyonce's, as well as your very influential um, social, you know, people that have big social following. So I think of them as one uh, type of influencer. The second one I think of is the subject matter expert, the person that is doing the work, the person that is actually, you know, hands on keyboard, you know, hands on product. They are an expert. You know, if they are a makeup person, they're the ones that have gone and tested out every single piece of makeup that exists in the world and they can actually provide subject matter expertise. And then the third one I always consider is the thought leader. And the thought leader I think of as the person that can connect the one and two and make it make the most sense, as well as kind of have that broad view of everything that's going on. So to not only kind of provide influence on what's happening today, but prepare people so they know where what the products are for tomorrow and where things are going. And so I look at this this relate these these three types of influencers. And unfortunately for the traditional um, the past lives, you know, and I think especially in the advertising space, you know, we went to Matthew McConaughey uh, to actually sell a Buick or, or a Lincoln uh, for, you know, he's on the commercial, he has credibility, he has facial, you know, his, his face is someone that people recognize. But in today's world, when someone says, hey, I'm going to buy a car, I'm not buying it because of a celebrity type influencer. I'm going to go to YouTube and someone that that rents a car every single week and does a review show every week on YouTube and has now test driven 
300 cars in the last two years, that person is a subject matter expert influencer that will actually influence my true decision on purchasing a car, not the celebrity that was on TV that just happens to be associated with the brand. And I think to kind of wrap that in where I think this goes is all three of those type of influencers are extremely important. And in some cases, you actually need all three to execute a, an, a successful project or a successful campaign. In other cases, you might need one or, or sometimes a combination of them. And very few times will you actually find somebody that, that, is, that is capable of doing all three of those um, roles. There are some people I actually like to consider myself as someone that has kind of grown a social following that allows me to, in certain spaces, uh, especially in like the really technology, uh, cloud computing, uh, live video space, I can I can be a subject matter expert as well as someone that has a social amplifying type network. But for a majority of influencers today, they're going to fit in one of those three. And then as a brand, you have to figure out, okay, what is my what is my strategy? What are my business goals? And then which one of these three or how many of these three are going to be the best for me to execute not only what my business goals are, but that's going to provide the most value for my community. So I, I don't really blame the influencers themselves because of that confusion, but I think we have to kind of start spelling out when someone says, hey, they're an influencer. What type of influencer influencer are they and then what kind of influence do they actually have and what's their direct relationship to their community yeah and you might you know you might not even need all of them at the same time because i could very well imagine a scenario where the celebrities or the the pay-for-play space is great for awareness right but it's not super targeted whereas if you're going to go for the thought leader in your example i must be looking for a car to start watching the review show if i'm not looking for a car uh, that guy's not going to be much use to me so it's almost a you know, not everybody is right for every phase of how you want to engage your community. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's really valuable advice. And I think on that note, Brian, for today, we'll, we'll call that a wrap. Sounds good to me. That was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. That was Brian Sanzo for my social fans. And this has been for Analytica. Look out for our next podcast soon. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that take on just, you know, my, my, my thoughts on where influencer marketing is going, some of the, the ins and outs. Now you're going to hear an interview where I was on the Influencer Pros podcast, where I'm talking about my path to becoming an influencer, and then also just some of the ins and outs of the influencer marketing industry. Here, without further ado, I hope you enjoy Influencer Pros interview. While I take a breath, welcome Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know. I think I need to figure out a way to make it sound a little bit less chaos, but that would be probably hiding the chaos that, that exists in the, uh, the digital live video and speaking world. So I guess that it does kind of summarize the, the world we live in, but I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think uh, more and more we start to see people who describe their jobs um, and it does have a little bit of that like wow, you're really doing a lot and wearing a lot of hats. So um, I've given the typical bio, Brian. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what a what a typical day in Brian's life entails here? 
Sure. So, you know, for me, you know, I, I have a unique path to kind of where I'm at. I was so much in the technology space for so long, worked for the Department of Defense and cybersecurity, uh, worked in the cloud computing space. And, and really, I do a lot of things with uh, employee advocacy, social business collaboration, um, and then kind of moved more into the social media space. And then uh, within the last two years, the live video has been something that I've taken a lot on. But you know, my day-to-day has a lot to do with you know, when I'm not speaking and I'm not traveling for speaking, you know, I work with brands, uh, mostly B2B brands at this point, but I do work with some B2C as well on really building out strategies to help leverage uh, new technologies. I like to say, you know, I suffer from FOMO or uh, the fear of missing out. So I like to live on the bleeding edge, understand, uh, you know, value cases for Snapchat for brands like IBM or SAP or Dell, you know, where a Facebook Live strategy fits into amplifying a product release or something that's happening for uh, a traditional brand. And then on top of that, we, we are the founders of Periscope Summit, which is now Summit Live. We've done two events, uh, one in 2015 and then one earlier this year. And then our next event is in, Fe- in late February in L.A., where we bring you know, uh, 1,500 creators and brands together really to talk about live video, uh, everything from the Periscope and, and Facebook Live to um, Snapchat and really social video as a whole, so YouTube and some Facebook stuff. So I do a little bit of uh, that stuff on on that side of our company, and then I also host my own podcast um, that we record every week, and that podcast is called Smack Talk, and uh, Smack stands for uh, Social, Mobile, Analytics, and Cloud, and uh, my co-host Daniel Newman and I have uh, been doing that for about uh, about a year and a half now, and we, we do the, the show every week, and then we also go to different live events, so we work with influencers and analysts, and we, we, we were at SAP event earlier this year, and uh, an IBM event, and then the Super Bowl, and we really interview you know, nine to 12 people a day at these offline events, kind of bringing people into that insights of what's happening on the ground so that if they're following along in the digital space. So it is kind of crazy and unorganized, but I I love the idea. I've never been one that's been uh, very good at finding my niche. I've always been really good at um, kind of rolling with the punches. So this is kind of how I do that from a, a business perspective. Awesome. I need to somehow talk to convince and convert and figure out how Todd and I can go to the Super Bowl next year. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm on board. Um, so, Brian, um, since we're talking influencer marketing, um, how would you define the word influencer? Well, I love this question. Um, you know, I the very first time I was asked to be an influencer, um, I was working in a data center company, and uh, I was actually, you know, we were moving towards like a cloud technology and Amazon or AWS um, had reached out and actually asked for me to attend the event as an influencer. And I initially turned them down because I don't think I knew what it was. And I didn't think I wanted to be one um, (laughs) because I was like, who I actually felt as if it was like, I was the sales guy for them from the outside in. Like, do I want to have influence? Like, um, you know, and it was an interesting piece because my full-time job was, you know, social business deployment inside of a data center company and working with our clients. And, and they, they wanted to bring me out there and they flew me out to the event. Um, you know, and it, it was nice. It was a progression because the very next year I ended up speaking at that event. But the, the term influencer for me has really been something that's, that was, that was four and a half years ago, five years ago. And, you know, and then I started going to uh, really working full-time with IBM and a lot of events. Uh, I attended 18 events for IBM over a two-year period. And 
a lot of what I was doing is, you know, I, I don't have a giant footprint, but the more I started to understand influencer from my perspective, the more I realized it wasn't just one thing or one person, but it was kind of an a range of things or a range of possibilities. And I, I do a lot now as I'm building out these strategies, working with brands to understand influencers. And so I actually think of an influencer now as three different types. I think of an influencer as a social amplifier or a, a celebrity being one type. The second type being a subject matter expert or someone that is really the one that is boots on ground practitioner. And then the third one being kind of the thought leader, the one that, that has the reach, has the stage, but also is the one that probably knows who the right expert is to connect with and oftentimes who the right amplifier is. So I used to think of myself as one of those channels and I was kind of either jealous or didn't understand the other channels or how they worked. But I now kind of believe that for, for kind of influencer marketing as we see it now, you need, you need one person or one kind of someone to fit each one of those roles in each campaign. And then ultimately for me, influence truly means it's the trust and the, and the authenticity I have with my community to know that whenever I'm talking about something, that not only is it something that I believe in, but it's something that they, it's worth spending their time in. So I look at what true influencer is, is it's your ability and your relationship, not only with the brand, but with the community that, that supports you. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that definition because I feel like we end up talking a lot about trust and authenticity um, on this podcast and that is a clear message that continues to resonate in the world of influencer marketing. I'm just out of curiosity, as someone who is particularly savvy with a lot of video and multimedia social platforms, whether it's Periscope, Snapchat, um, do you have a personal favorite? I know that there's probably use cases for all. Um, what What's your favorite social channel? So for the last five years, without question, is Twitter. I mean, Twitter's changed my life uh, personally and professionally. It's given me opportunities to speak around the world. Uh, my business partners were all actually, all three of my business partners at this point right now, I actually all met them via either a Twitter chat or a Twitter conversation. Um, so Twitter has always been kind of my my love. It's the, the one that's allowed me to grow and, and, and connect with a lot of the people that I've wanted to over the longest amount of time. But actually since January of this year, the first app that I open in the morning, the last one I close at night is actually Snapchat. And um, to put this in context, in December of 2014, I wrote a blog post calling Snapchat the dumbest app that ever existed. And he was an idiot for not selling it to, to Facebook. And for me, what's really changed, the, the platform's changed as well, but the ability for me to connect in real time and very raw with my audience and my community on Snapchat is amazing. I can tell you the I, I've got more speaking opportunities and more business in 2016 via Snapchat than any other platform. The caveat there is I've built a relationship with these people on other platforms for a long time. It's Snapchat kind of gives you that unfiltered ability to have some conversations that you maybe don't have normally in social media. So surprisingly enough, for me personally, um, Snapchat is my is my is my favorite right now, and I'm I'm just amazed. I have I'm so blessed. I've an amazing community. My community, um, when I ask them, you know, I, I do things like, you know, give me the top three things you would like me to address. Uh, I did that about a week ago, and I got a little over 400 responses in two hours. And and uh, you know, you can't you can't pay for that kind of uh, engagement on other channels. So it's, I'm 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 in love with Snapchat at the moment. You know, I was reading something recently too about that. Do you? 
see it as potentially a more visual replacement of Twitter. That was kind of the, the gist of what I was reading is that's where they see Snapchat could eventually be become, so to speak. So it's interesting because, you know, I'm a big Periscoper. I love Periscope and, and Facebook Live. But the thing that I think is the biggest struggle for what we see in this new digital age is people want to be able to engage and have conversations with you. And if you're only being, if you're only presenting that time that they can have these conversations with you when you're on video, they want to be able to have these conversations elsewhere. And, and Snapchat allows me you know, like most people watch me on video. A majority of, even though I have the podcast, we also record the podcast live on Facebook Live so people can actually watch that side as well. And for me, Snapchat, allowing people to come over to Snapchat, and I like to say, look me in their digital eyeballs, but also leverage their digital eyeballs. So we're having a, a video-to-video conversation. So I look at Twitter as the 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 place where I'm able to grow and expand my community and educate people that don't know, like, and trust me already. The people that know, like, and trust me already are following me on Facebook. And then what Snapchat gives is it gives both of those those different types of people the opportunity to see raw, real, behind-the-scenes me, and then also being able to have access to ask me questions that it's not about broadcasting. Because one of the things that I love to explain here on Snapchat is when you post your Snapchat story, it's a one-to-many relationship. So everyone who's following you on Snapchat can see when I post my story. But when people reply back, it's a one-to-one conversation. And why is that important? Well, a lot of times people comment on a Facebook post or a YouTube video. They just they comment to be seen. They want to comment, hey, I was on Gary Vaynerchuk's piece there or Jay Bear's uh, Facebook Live. I commented. And, and really figuring out what is valuable is really hard on that. But on Snapchat, nobody knows how many people replied or who replied. So the, the, the engagement backwards to me is not only raw and real, but it's extremely valuable because people aren't commenting to be seen. They actually come in because they have something to say or something they want to learn, which is why it's the first app and I open in the morning compared to Twitter, because I have a lot of replies and mentions on Twitter that might waste my time or not be truly valuable, where on Snapchat, it gives me that, that really engaged conversation that is valuable, because it's not about being seen, it's more about having a conversation. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm looking you in your digital eyeballs right now, which is like the best phrase ever. I'm going <laughs> to use that going forward. Um, but, you know, as we start to talk through what you really like. I think an interesting thing that you're highlighting is that as we talk about trust and authenticity, a lot of times we talk about brands having trust and authenticity, influencers having trust and authenticity. And what you're saying is having a community for that influencer that has authenticity and engagement um, is a necessary component of this as well. So do you, do you kind of see all three pieces of the relationship in the mix um, as you start to look at different campaigns? I think probably more so now than ever before. And, and I actually said this on Social Pros probably like two years ago. But the idea that nobody goes on social media today to figure out, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, what's my favorite brand posting on social, right? And that just doesn't exist. But what you do is you build a relationship not only with the people behind the brand, but you build a relationship with the people behind the Twitter accounts of your community. And I really think that the strong influencers of today are not people that ever mention how many followers they have. They have they talk about how many people they engage with, how many people they have conversations with. Because trust and authenticity, you know, 
I, I, I talk about a lot. I turned down this opportunity. There's a skinny jean company that actually uh, wanted to sponsor me and bring me on as an influencer. It be my most lucrative financial gig that I had ever got. And they wanted me to do it on Periscope. And the running joke was I kept telling, well, I don't ever show my legs. Most of my, my Periscopes, I'm sitting at my desk. And, and for me, you know, no one event, no one gig, no one opportunity is worth losing the trust and authenticity I have with my community. Without question, it's, it's, that's the most valuable piece. So I will turn down opportunities without even hesitation if I think it'll, it will, it will jeopardize something in, in that space. But I think also being able to understand and, and demonstrate the power of your community is important because I think for a lot of influencers, they have a great relationship, they have strong influence, but if they don't have those, those big numbers, it's hard to prove that for a brand. So I do look at it as kind of um, multiple channels. And how can I preach engagement and trust and transparency if I'm not only willing to do it myself, which I do very much on, on Snapchat, but also if I'm not expecting and giving my community a place to do that with me. And I have some extremely candid, authentic conversations with CIOs and decision makers of Fortune 500 companies via Snapchat. And I think the reason that is is because we have kind of a, a, a mutual understanding of just an unfiltered trust and transparency so we can learn from each other. And I think that is kind of the future as we're moving because Social media got so digital and so internet focused that we're now getting back around to what my friend Brian Kramer, you know, he wrote the book Human to Human. You know, it is, we really want to connect with humans and, and Pokemon Go is a, another example. The reason that app is different than Angry Birds is because it gets people out into the community to have conversations with other people that are using the same app and have the same passions and purpose. And what other technology is able to happen? That's what we, we're craving that today more so than any time in our, in our, you know, kind of our digital world. And I'm excited to see it kind of come full circle and it'd be much more about one-to-one -one conversations than, you know, one-to-many broadcasting. I love everything that you're saying. And, but, and something you mentioned about Snapchat and it's, um, I wonder, I'd love to get your opinion on this. So, so you talk about the authenticity that, as you said, it's, it's not about just saying, hey, I was in someone's feed, but it's more about this actual authentic engagement. But the, uh, the flip side of that for companies, and as you said, you talk to these CIOs and these C-suites on the Fortune 500 companies, you know, the, their biggest challenge right now with, with doing more influencer marketing, and, and when we say that, you know, Heidi and I are always thinking about it when it's done right, you know, when the influencer has their voice and you're not trying to control the message. And so let's remove all of it, all of those thoughts. But when you're doing influencer marketing, right, the biggest challenge those folks have is, um, is being able to show that it delivers, right, is, is metrics and ROI. So on something like Snapchat, where you can't necessarily see this, how do you think it will become adopted by more companies that are looking to use that platform because it is such a, a powerful platform if they can't measure it? Or do you see different ways of looking at measurement of those types of platforms? Oh, I love that question. That is, um, so I, I have a keynote that I'm giving, I actually giving it for the first time at Inbound um, this year, um, this fall, but the keynote's called, you know, Limitations Inspire Creativity. 
And I believe that the limitations on platforms like Periscope, Facebook Live, and Snapchat actually allow us to be more creative with, with not only the stories that we're telling and the way we're telling the stories, but the actual way we actually quantify value and return on the time we spend. And so I actually look at this, and when I'm building out a strategy for a brand, I never talk about the tool at all until the very end. We first start by defining what success looks like. And I think it's the same with every influence campaign that we talk about is I want to know what success looks like. I then want to understand what is our, our budget and our, and our area that we're looking to work on. And then I'm going to go look at the community because I think if we start where the community is, too often we're looking at it and saying, well, Brian, you know, I, I want to educate this audience to make this decision. And instead of starting it there, we actually start and say, well, our audience, our purchase, the people that make our purchases are not on Snapchat, right? Like I hear that a lot. And I say, well, I didn't ask that question. I want to know who is actually, who's the end person that's making that, that final purchase, and then who's the person that that person listens to? And let's take, let's take you know, one of my favorite stories that I've, a brand that, you know, they were looking to educate, you know, the, the purchaser of, of jeans, female owners or female purchasers of jeans, um, they're trying to target between 30 and 45-year-old women that buy jeans. And the interesting thing was when we were going through the workflow, the people that actually influence that age group for jeans, surprisingly enough, is 13 to 23-year-old females because moms listen to their daughters, kid, uh, you know, other ones listen to their mom's kids, or they listen to what's trendy and fashionable. So when a brand looked at that and said, well, our purchaser is not on Snapchat, well, did it matter that your purchaser is not on Snapchat? Because the person that influences them is actually on Snapchat. And I, I think by understanding where your audience is is a big one. And then I love to, I don't believe Snapchat, you shouldn't start off on Snapchat as your only community. I think every brand up until recently has made a massive mistake in social media. And that mistake is they've built a following on a social network, not a community that lives in social. And I think when you build a community, it doesn't matter where you go, they will follow you and join you because the community is about a common purpose and a shared passion. But when you build a following on Twitter, I can tell you, I, I probably can share 25 brands, which I won't, that said, they went live on Periscope and they would contact me and say, Brian, I need your help. I have 200,000 followers on Twitter and this app is owned by Twitter, but I only have 1,100 people that want to follow me on Periscope. And the real true root problem of that is you haven't built engagement. You haven't built a community. These are people that followed you, probably don't even have you on a Twitter list. They might not even be on Twitter anymore. And really, let's, let's go backwards engineer this and figure out how many people do you actually actively have on Twitter? Or let's go to Facebook. And you know, if you look at your true active engagement on Facebook, what does that look like? Okay, now that we know those numbers, now let's set the bar and manage expectations for what these new platforms are. So when I'm building a Snapchat campaign, my call to action on both Snapchat and live video, more times than not, does not ever, ever happen on that platform. But, and let me give you an example. For, for me, I like to tell people, you know, if we, we want to drive people to sign up for a webinar, I'm never going to mention the webinar on the live stream except for probably once. But what I will do is I will interview people about how this, this, this uh, webinar came to about, why this topic is passionate for me, the experience of the people that are on the webinar. And I'm going to share all of that on live video. And I'm going to tell people, you know, there's this is going to be a great webinar. You guys should, um, you know, share it out. And thank you, everybody, for sharing this on Twitter. And tell you what, I'm going to 
give away Jay Bear's new book, Hug Your Haters, to um, whoever, one person, lucky person, that shares out this broadcast to my Twitter audience. Well, what I'm doing is I'm now able to take all of these people that are sharing it out, and I'm able to put all those Twitter names in a, in a Twitter list. And then afterwards, so now I'm kind of bridging the two audiences. I'm able to connect with them on, on another platform. And then I'm able to either put paid social behind it and, and target them with a paid social campaign, or I can reach out to them individually and say, thanks so much for reaching out, to, uh, you know, sharing the broadcast on Twitter. I know you watched about our webinar on Periscope. Here's a link to the webinar if you want to sign up. And I can tell you, I can get an amazing click-through on that kind of connection because I'm building and providing the value first and then providing the call to action, which is additional value afterwards. And I do the same thing on Snapchat. I do screenshot campaigns where I tell people, you know, screenshot yourself taking uh, a selfie with your favorite, uh, you, you know, um, filter. And it's not about just getting them to, to use my filter in their Snapchat feed, but I tell them, share it to Instagram and Twitter and I'm going to reward somebody or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give something away or someone will get a, be a guest cameo on one of my future broadcasts. And by doing that, I'm not only bridging the audience, but I'm able to demonstrate who are truly advocate because right there I'm proving influence because I'm influencing them to not only take one action in a screenshot, but I'm actually influencing them to take a second action and share and broadcast to their followers what I'm talking about. And that to me matures them in the funnel and in that sales cycle to where when I do present them a call to action, it's actually not only valuable, but it's targeted and I can get a pretty good success rate. So I look at all of the limitations that Snapchat gives us. I, you know, I do a lot on the trends on what time, I can tell you what time of day is best for me to Snapchat personally. I can tell you what type of stories have the most um, value. And Snapchat doesn't give me that data, but they give me enough data that I'm able to correlate that and record it in spreadsheets and, and some of the tools out there to really provide that to my brands. And I think last but not least, I think the influencer is just as much responsible for presenting their value of a brand they work with than anybody else. Because I, I have a saying, and I think any influencer today can get a one-night stand with a brand, very few can get them to call them back the next day. And I think that's because very few influencers not only understand the, the brand's success metrics, but understand how to demonstrate what the value was that they provided. And so instead of saying like, hey, I just I did exactly what they said, well, that's fine, and, and that's where it can end. Or I can actually demonstrate all of the value I provided, as well as some additional opportunities and things that we can work together. And, and so that's kind of where I work with. So I work with myself as an influencer, I work with some creators, and now I do a lot of things from a brand perspective where a brand comes to me and says, I have this event, this is my success metrics, Brian, build me out a campaign, I don't care what platforms you're using, build me out a campaign that gets me to the success metric, and that's my ideal client. That's incredible. I mean, I think there's two takeaways from this. One is it's it's the amount. And there's a lot of work, and it, there is a passion and, a, and an intensity that, that a good influencer puts into their work. Um, and second is I need to be at inbound for this uh, for this keynote speech so I can hear all of this. This is amazing and fantastic information here. So thank you for giving us kind of a little uh, prequel as to what you'll be talking about at inbound this fall. So um, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, let's let's jump into um, a couple of questions here before we go into our sponsor reads. But you know, what is one thing with influencer marketing that you see that people could do better at, or they're just not fully understanding yet? Celebrating their employees, which is going to sound kind of weird, but I actually think you know, 
for influencer marketing to truly be valuable, I think the greatest person, the greatest people to actually tell a brand story are the people that make the brand great, which are their employees. And I have a, I have a love and a bias towards employee advocacy, but it's not employee advocacy like you know, just what unfortunately the the industry of employee advocacy has kind of lived for recently, which is just, you know, a talking head that only spews marketing and sales crap from that brand, right? I look at employee advocacy as the the employee being able to tell their story integrated through in their story is how where they work at and, and a connection to a business goal. But I look at influencer marketing and, and when I'm working with a brand or I'm talking to a brand if a brand can't empower their employees who are on payroll and who they're almost forced to trust, and you know, I, I challenge a lot of managers, I was like, do you trust your employees? And the first thing they always say is yes. And I say, okay, let them take over your Facebook Live account, and they say, no, 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 no. And I'm like, oh, well, do you really trust your employees then? And I, the reason I bring that up in the influencer side is, how can you truly convey that you trust a third party or a thought leader or a speaker or someone with a big social presence if you don't trust the person on your payroll. And I look at that as, as the, first, the first inkling. So if you have a product manager that has helped design that product, why not start empowering them to tell their story and go to events that have, uh, you know, that product managers are sharing, you know, the workflow and things that they're doing. So I actually look at a lot of the influencer marketing space as if you can't prove it with your current employees, it's hard for me to believe that you're going to be able to prove it with me as an outsider. And maybe that's because it's, you know, it is a harder thing. That, that trust, you know, I just took over SAP uh, Facebook account for five days last week, five days in a row at 11 a.m. I did a 30 minute broadcast interviewing someone different for five days. And that's a lot of trust. I have full access to their Facebook page. I have full access to ask the people anything I want. I know what the SAP's goals are, but I can tell you that relationship started two and a half years ago when they sponsored one of my Twitter chat shows. And it's taken me a long time to build up that rapport with them to the point where they let me full reign, full trust, but I will promise you the results that we're going to put out after this, this program are going to be amazing because not only do they trust me, but they trusted their employee that worked there to also do some things with me, and so we kind of collaborated. So I look at empowering employees as kind of one of those first steps to making, you know, kind of proving that you can uh, embrace influencer marketing as well. You know, Brian, one of the interesting things that I think you've highlighted in the past um, is your belief that there are three types of influencers. And I think as you're discussing uh, advocate marketing, employee marketing, um, it, it can really tie into those three categories. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. So, yeah, I think, and I think that's the interesting piece is that when we look at our, uh, as a brand, if you're a brand and you're looking at a, as yourself as a brand, you know, there, there are people that are already naturally social within your company. I don't care really what, what kind of industry or brand. I work for the, the Department of Defense and Cybersecurity, a very non-sexy, very regulated industry. And I can tell you, um, I engage and have amazing com conversations with active duty and government employees on a regular basis. And, and they're very active. So I think uh, a lot of brands and industries uh, use the regulation and the, their industry as a crutch I, and, or an excuse. I think that's something we have to get over. But when you look at it, you know, it's it's the celebrity and the social amplifier. So someone that has that that mass, the, the social numbers. And I think we, we are moving away from vanity metrics. But I think if a business comes to me and says, we really need to stretch the word of mouth and we really want to get people to aware that we do this. We really want to get people aware of an event that's going on. You do need to work with the social amplifier or the celebrity type. But when it comes to like, 
you know, the, the actual practitioner of the, of the actual work, you know, one of the keynotes I just recently gave was a lot about, I said, discovering the girl next door is the title, but do we buy a Kia because LeBron James says that he's driving a Kia? No, because none of us believe that LeBron James is buying a Kia or is driving a Kia. But by leveraging LeBron James, you're getting a word of mouth of what the Kia car is. But for me, what Kia should then do is they should go then to YouTube influencers that review and drive cars on a regular basis and have them share their story on driving this Kia. Because when it comes down to it, they're the expert, and we're going to trust them, and we're going to actually make a decision to actually maybe go get a test drive or make something happen because we're going to listen to the expert that we can actually picture driving that car. And then the third tier is what I like to think of as that thought leader. And the thought leader is someone that has either been in this space for a long time or truly understands the space from a very holistic view. So if we use the Kia example there, and I have no affiliation with Kia, I just use that as an example because of the LeBron James side, is you know the thought leader side is there, well, how how do I work with an analyst or how do I work with you know one of the, the third party car companies to really bring all of these things together? Why not bring a Snapchat influencer to provide access into the cool features of the car? Let's live stream an interview with the, the inventor of something that's cool technology inside of the Kia and the person that's doing the, the, the interviewing is someone that is a thought leader in the space of engineering and innovation in the car space. And, and really what you're able to do there is you're able to, to add not only authenticity but validity to the conversation by kind of having all three of those parts. So I look at it at a very holistic view. Each one is going to serve a different business success metric, but also each one is going to implement what they're doing differently. Because I think one of the, the bigger problems is we incentivize and reward and celebrate each influencer as if they're the same, yet we hire multiple different influencers because they're all different. And I think that's a massive Massive problem we're looking at it. So I love gamification. I love rewarding. But if we're going to gamify and we're going to reward, why not allow each one of those to be customized? Because a $1,000 Amex gift card might be valuable to one influencer, but a shout out or a, a comment on my LinkedIn post from Richard Branson, because I'm working with his company on LinkedIn, uh, and, and him commenting on my LinkedIn post is actually much more valuable to me than the $1,000 Amex gift card. So I kind of look at that as we need to not only understand each one of those three channels and how they fit a different success metric, but we also have to understand that each influencer needs to be incentivized, rewarded, and celebrated in a manner that is both rewarding for them as well as the brand. I, I love that symbiotic relationship. And in a lot of ways, the way that you're categorizing uh, different influencers almost sounds like you can map different types of influencers and influencer marketing to every aspect of the marketing funnel that as people go through a buying decision, whether they get awareness with the social amplifiers, begin to decide what pair of jeans I'm going to buy from the 13-year-old subject matter experts. And then the thought leaders truly saying to me, here, Heidi, here are the jeans you need to not look like you're wearing mom jeans. Um, really, really brings you all the way through. Um, so, you know, a couple of questions here, Brian, in closing, uh, gazing into your crystal ball, where do you see influencer marketing evolving over the next year or so? I believe video is the great equalizer. And, um, and I, I like to, I say 
I call it participatory content. And what I mean by participatory content is we really want to, it's no longer just about broadcasting um, what we're doing. It's really about having a conversation. And I think the ones that are doing this really well, you don't really, I don't, nobody really cares about what you're doing as a brand and they really don't care about what you're doing as an influencer. They care about how it impacts them, why you're doing it, and then why they should care. And I think video allows us to convey that at a scale like we've never seen before. I mean, the, the Cisco report that just came out, it's 81% of internet traffic by 2020 will be video. And live video, I don't believe live video replaces any social network. I, I work all my live video campaigns with a YouTuber and a Snapchatter. These are not replacing them. But what it does is it gives us the ability to have that participatory where we're having conversations back and forth. We're engaging and, and really building that rapport. And oftentimes, I think probably the most powerful phrase in the future of influencer marketing for an influencer to say is saying, I don't know. Because on live video, you're throwing questions and comments and concerns, and, and it, that's part of the reason it's scary. But part of the reason that it's a massive equalizer is because for you to prove that you actually know something, that you're working with a brand that you like, that you're actually you know, not fake, you're not, you know, you're not you know, pulling one over on us, you're not just doing this for the money, is you have to be able to convey what you do know and have the ability to admit what you don't know. And I think it's been really hard to find that. I mean, nobody on their website today has a, has a page of everything our influencers don't know. Like, that does, there's no such thing, right? But the idea, when someone asks me a question on a live stream, and I'm like, I'm actually not sure about that. Let me get back to you. I'll make sure we follow up on that on Twitter. Send me a tweet. When I do get a question that I answer, it not only adds validity, but now that person's going to go, well, because they said I don't know, I now have a little bit more trust in what they're going to lead me to next. And so I look at the future of influencer marketing. As not only, you know, we're talking about, a lot of people are talking about the niche aspect where it's a much smaller focus. And I think that is important in one of those three categories, not all three of those categories, but I really think video, video of all sorts, and it, you know, if it, it can be from Facebook Live and, and, and video on Periscope, or it can be you know, Twitter video, where Twitter video, we get 140 seconds now. I, I do a lot of Instagram videos now, and what I do on my Instagram video is I ask people to comment on that video, and that's gonna give me my topic for my next Instagram video. So not only are they able to watch the video, and it's short, snackable, or I like to say Snapchat, type content where it's quick and to the point, but then I allow them to participate in it, and then the next piece of content is actually driven by my community because as an influencer, I create content for one reason and one reason only, and that's to serve my, my community and help my brand solve their business goals or their, what their success metrics are. And if I can do that in a participatory way, that's how people keep coming back. That's how you build true influence and true advocacy. And, and video, it's going to be exciting to see where video goes. Probably a year from now, we're going to come back and, and we're really going to see some things inside of Facebook Live that we would have never imagined. We're going to have access into the NFL football rooms with Paris like we've never seen before where I'm a Steeler fan. I can ask Heinz Ward a question while he's standing in the locker room of the Steelers after a game. We've never had that access before. And that's really what my, my think like a fan philosophy is. It's, it's just we want access to people, places, experiences, and we want that in a way that we could actually participate. And I think that's where we're going with influencer marketing. Makes a ton of sense. Thank you so much for those insights. Um, just before we go to our sponsor reads, share with our community, Brian, what's one thing about you most people wouldn't expect? Um, most people wouldn't expect, well, I guess 
people, most people wouldn't expect how much I actually use my poker background in everything I do. I played semi-professional poker for two years, played in the World Series of Poker, did a lot, um, probably studied poker more so than I've studied anything else in my entire life. And I really, I'm not a math person. Uh, I'm not even really a gaming type person. I'm a people person. And my passion is, I love connecting great people with great people to do great things. And for me to truly understand what people are about, it's oftentimes what they're not saying is just as important and sometimes more important than what they are saying. And I can tell you, when I'm watching someone on video, when I'm watching someone on stage, when I'm on stage myself, I'm reading nonverbal cues. I'm, I'm diving in. You know, I, I have different people, where they put their feet, how they move their hands. And I think those kind of things allow me to do things that might seem rash or, you know, like, oh my goodness, Brian, you just threw your slides away and decided to go down a completely different path. But really, I'm using a lot of a skill set that I, I gained at a, at a poker table to really relate with those people so I understand them better because really that's what made me very successful in poker is that I was able to break down that, that barrier and that wall at the table and then ultimately understand what they were not saying or not doing and then be able to, to use that in my advantage of poker. So that's probably one of the things that people, I, I talk about the poker side a lot, but people don't realize that you know every Skype conversation that I have, I'm looking at you know how close you move to the camera, when you start to lean back, when you cross your arms, when you don't cross your arms and those kind of things. And it allows me ultimately to provide a better conversation to you on the other side and it's not me leveraging that against you it's really me learning what you want to know so I can provide the best value well we have had guests on the show that are prima ballerinas and elephant trainers but you are definitely our first professional poker player um, so excited uh, to have you on um, Brian this has been truly insightful given uh, everyone a lot to think about some great takeaways and personal stories um, however you are not off the hook yet we are going to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsors and then we're going to ask you three would you rather questions uh, to learn a little bit more about what makes you tick. Um, so thank you again, but please sit tight and we'll be back with you shortly. So first of all, tap influence. Influencer marketing drives sales and we've just released the study that proves it. In conjunction with Nielsen Catalina Solutions, we measured the impact of influencer content on sales and found it provides 11 times the ROI annually compared to traditional digital advertising. To learn more and see the case study, visit tapinfluence.com slash ROI. That's tapinfluence.com slash ROI. In Zuberance, did you know that most people don't trust ads, but 92% of people trust word of mouth? Zuberance is a word of mouth marketing company that focuses on turning word of mouth into sales. Now, for a limited time, you can download the first chapter of Brand Advocates by Zuberance founder and CEO Rob Fagetta. Brand Advocates has been called the ultimate guidebook to advocate marketing. It features over 50 real-world B2C and B2B case studies. Plus, there's lots of practical, practical advocate marketing tips and hints. Go to zuberns.com slash podcast to download it for free right now. That's Z-U-B-E-R-A-N-C-E dot com slash podcast. 
And of course, if you like what you hear on this podcast, you'll love Definitive, the email from Convince and Convert that many marketers say is the most useful resource around. Each day, the team at Convince and Convert picks a topic and sends you the three best resources ever created about that topic. It's topical, it's timely, it's useful. Go to DefinitiveDigest.com and subscribe for free right now. Once again, that's DefinitiveDigest.com. And lastly, Scission. People consume brand content but rely on friends, family, and online personalities for buying advice. Extend brand reach, inspire user-generated content, and boost your bottom line with Cision's free influencer white paper. Get it at Cision.com slash influencer hyphen resource. That's C-I-S-I-O-N dot com slash influencer hyphen resource. Cision, power your story. All right, so we are back. Brian, are you ready for three would-you-rather questions? Let's do it. All right. So the first one is going to be your sense of adventure. Would you rather ride a lion or a whale? Ooh, I... I would say I would rather ride a whale. I, I was a surfer growing up in Virginia Beach, and I love the I love the water. And I also could, thought it probably hurts a lot less if I fall off the whale than if I did a lion. So I'll go with a whale. <laughs> All right, I love again the surfer reference. We've had a couple of those now. I like that. Um, all right. So the next question, this gets more into your tech background, and so you might have some good insight into this and why you make this decision. Would you rather have free Apple or Android products forever or free Wi-Fi wherever you go? Free Wi-Fi wherever I go. I, uh, the, the product is only as great as the uh, experience I'm able to create. And I, uh, I've had plenty of locations and traveling around the world. I, I traveled for the Department of Defense to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I can remember the, uh, the need for the, those guys especially to, they have a great technology in their hand and, and no access to internet. So for me, uh, I don't think I really care at the end of the day. I mean, the lowercase i in the front of my Twitter handle is because I'm an Apple fanboy. And that's for the i products, iPhone, I, iPad. But I also own a, an Android Samsung S7 Edge. So I, I play on both sides, but I can tell you, uh, I, I think it, between battery life and Wi-Fi, I, I could be really happy if that's the greatest inventions in 20, 2017 as we, we fix Wi-Fi and we fix battery life because those are my two biggest lim- limitations. So yeah, give me, give me Wi-Fi. All Free right. Wi-Fi for everyone. <laughs> yes. I know I have um, so many people that were when we're in an airport and the airports still charge you for the Wi-Fi and they're like, "Good Lord, it's 2016. Why are airports still charging people for public Wi-Fi?" Uh, well, the funny part is I, I actually advocated for Delta. I'm a Delta fan for them to increase their price of their Wi-Fi on the plane, only because it, the network isn't strong enough. And when it was so cheap that more people got on it, it made the experience worse. So I'd rather be paying. I'd rather pay more and less people get on it, so I get the uh, the added benefit. But no, I, it is a. It's an especially when you go to a, a you know a third you go to another country and you know their Wi-Fi is free or you know I was in Korea and you know every cab is watching you know TV broadcasts for free because their their city is so well connected and it's like oh we, we probably do need to to get a little bit better at that across the board yeah absolutely so all right the last one is our most serious question if you had the choice between the two would you rather be a Kardashian or a tween Disney star. 
Oh, I would say a tween Disney star because I just got back from VidCon, um, the video conference there in Anaheim, and I was presenting there, but I was watching the Musical.ly stars that are the, the singers, and there's these 13, 14, 15-year-old kids that are doing things with stop motion and, and singing, and their fans are just as rabid as everywhere else, but I don't think they have the, 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 deal, the, the deal with the life of the... Uh, of the celebrity like the Kardashians where every single you know grocery store they go into, they're getting pictures taken from. So I like the idea of, of I, I would say, turning my celebrity on or turning it off whenever I go into certain places. I love the attention. I will, I will never turn down a selfie ever in my life. I love, uh, I'm always saying, I like to turn handshakes into uh, hugs and selfies. But uh, I like to do that you know, kind of in a place that I know, unlike the Kardashians. So I, give me a tween star. That sounds good. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, Brian, um, this has been uh, truly insightful and a really fun podcast. For our listeners, uh, please tell them where they can find you. So I believe, you know, for personal branding, I do a lot of work in that space. Consistency is key. And so I am iSocial fans uh, on every single channel. So from Snapchat to Periscope to Facebook, as well as my website being iSocialFans.com. And then if... 